Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And one of the fastest-growing social and political movements in recent history has been sweeping across France, spreading throughout Europe, and is now starting to develop in North America and elsewhere. Large gatherings have occurred in nearly 300 European cities. What? You've never heard anything about this? Uh, Well, you're not alone. It's been intentional. As our guest this hour points out, there has been a virtual blackout on what might well be one of the most significant stories of 2016. It's called, pardon my pronunciation, Nuit Debout, which translates into English as Night on Your Feet, or Night Uprising, or Night Together, something like that. Some commentators have noted the word debout is the first word of the traditional anthem, the Internationale, meaning arise. It's about getting otherwise isolated people together. As the old saying goes, in unity there is strength. What are we talking about? Well, our guest today, Gabriel Rockhill, will explain. Gabe, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Gabriel Rockhill has written about the media blackout on Counterpunch. He's author, uh, most notably, of Interventions in Contemporary Thought, uh, uh, Radical History and the Politics of Art. Love to read that. Logique de de l'Histoire. He's an associate professor in Villanova University's philosophy department and the founding director of Atelier de de Théorie Critique. Thank you. At the Sorbonne. I know what the Sorbonne is anyway. My French isn't great. Sorry about that. Okay, what is Nuit Debout? Well, Nuit Debout, like a lot of contemporary social movements, emerged out of a number of different and disparate factors that congealed around the end of March. So March 31st, there was a major protest that was organized, and some of those participating decided to take the protest to the next level and not leave, meaning to stay there all night. That was the kind of spark, if you will, and it was around a new law that has been, that the French government has been trying to push through, which seeks to further render the workforce precarious. But it immediately began to spread both thematically and geographically so that the way in which it came to define itself in the first weeks was in terms of a convergence of struggles so that the struggle was not only against a specific law but against the broader neoliberal economic and political paradigm and even more broadly than that, 
the kind of social matrix of anything from uh, institutionalized racism to compulsory homo- uh, heterosexuality and other such things. Geographically, then, if the thematic spread has uh, provided a platform for a, a number of these different struggles to converge. Geographically, it spread very quickly throughout France, uh, through Belgium, Germany, uh, England, and uh, and now elsewhere. On the 15th of this month, there's a call for a global debout, or a global set of occupations in solidarity with the movement that generated in France. Fascinating. Interesting that we haven't heard about it. Is it relate it sounds kind of familiar like America's Occupy Wall Street, which wasn't very specific. It was kind of generalized, but there was a lot of power there. How is it the comparison must be made. What's what's your take on uh, how realistic that may be? Yes, absolutely. There is significant overlap, and I think one of the things that is important to highlight is the extent to which a lot of the struggles over the last five to ten years for a radical transformation of the political, economic, and social system that we currently have are struggles that ultimately are linked in various ways, Uh, linked insofar as a lot of the strategies are similar. There is direct overlap between a number of the sites and exchanges between them, and as well a common struggle against a world in which I think we need to say that it's no longer that another world is possible, but another world is necessary. And so the connections to the Occupy movement, to the Indignados movement, to uh, protests around the Mediterranean region and Quebec and elsewhere, I think is uh, is absolutely clear. And there's a way in which one of the things I think we need to do both theoretically and practically is recognize the extent to which these struggles are, are linked and federate between them in order to mobilize beyond nation-state borders yes. or beyond... Uh, the divide-and-conquer strategies of both the mass media and the political machine, in which most of these movements, when they are actually talked about, are then identified as national movements or restricted, for instance, in the case of Occupy to Zuccotti Park, which is, of course, only one of the uh, thousands and thousands of Occupy sites. And that geographic strategy, it's also a temporal strategy of divide-and-conquer, aims at separating these movements. And I think that one of the impulses of the Nuit Debout movement that we both need to identify and contribute to is the extent to which uh, the night uprising is a global uprising uh, across disparate territories against a system that is not tenable. And you're reminding me, pardon me, but uh, I am somewhat obsessed with the First World War and had had workers, the working class at the time was sacrificed, millions and millions and millions of people. There was some discussion back then of uniting. I mean, there was that uh, Christmas truce uh, where just on one day, people, workers on both sides of the trenches got up and, and joined together. Had people who were most being sacrificed, losing limbs and lives and being destroyed, gotten together against the power structure that would have made a huge difference. But it didn't, so we had an absolute disaster on our hands. Uh, yeah. And, and why has there been the media blackout? Is it coordinated, do you think, or is it more simply that like-minded corporate media tend to think the same? Tell us about that media blackout. Well, I think the first thing to say is that it is a partial misnomer to claim that we have a free press. 
what we have is a paid press. Yeah, good point. Paid press is driven by corporate interests, advertising dollars, and is bound up with the political machinery and the corporate glitz machine. And there doesn't even need to be a conscious articulation of the blackout itself, because as you suggested in your question, there's a way in which this system is self-perpetuating. And one of the things I highlight in the article on Counterpunch is the extent to which the blackout thus far has not only cut across uh, a wide span of the mass media, but even some of the alternative uh, public publicly funded media, and that this is generated out of a kind of inertia effect of sorts, in which something that's not a story tends to simply remain not a story. And that the first phase in the playbook of the mass media concerning radical social movements is always ignore. I lived this very specifically in my involvement with the Occupy movement, in which it had been going on for weeks, and it was as if it did not exist right. in the mass media. I and what I would like to see happen, and I have contacted myself directly many of the major representatives of the corporate media in the United States to see if we can get some coverage of the story, is not simply coverage, but quality coverage. Because my worry is that the second phase in this playbook is to delegitimate. And again, we can refer back to the Occupy movement, my own personal experience with it, and many other people had the same experience, which is when there's finally some visibility provided by the corporate media, the visibility is almost always in terms of finding ways of delegitimating the movement through uh, labeling it as violent, identifying it as uh, having no goals, being unstructured, being chaotic, all of these adjectives that tend to give an image to the general public that yes. leaves the public wondering why anyone in their right mind yeah. would be involved with such a movement. And yet there's hundreds of thousands of people who have been participating on a regular basis. I don't think they're out of their right minds. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Gabriel uh, Rockhill, uh, who has written about uh, the media blackout of Nuit Debout that is going on. Who is, is it? I think you're absolutely right. They try to delegitimizing it by, by getting a storyline and just sticking with it to delegitimize it. Is it a protest or a social movement? What I mean by that is protests tend to have one specific demands. What are the goals of Nuit Debout? It's true that I think the best term for it would be a social movement in the broad sense. It's not a protest insofar as it's not identified a single cause or a single objective, and it's also not delimited in time, meaning that a lot of the, at least traditional logic of protests, is that they're for a limited amount of time until the results are either obtained or the, the, uh, the protest decides to dissolve itself and take on other strategies. In this case, it's a broad social movement that is bringing together a multiplicity of different actors, different organizations and groups, and that has a number of different objectives uh, in mind. And that is, uh, I think, one of the ways in which it's been both uh, that it has self-articulated is in terms of a, a convergence of struggles. So at once recognizing the multiplicity of concerns and the number of fronts of struggles, of struggle, but at the same time wanting them not to be disparate and recognizing that we need to federate between these different struggles because in many ways it's part of the same basic battle, which is a battle ultimately to transform 
the world structures that we've inherited, which no longer work and have not worked for a very long time. Uh, we're just quickly destroying the biosphere. Uh, the level of alienated labor and precarious labor is, is, is extreme. And there are so many ways in which the world model that we have is, is absolutely untenable. And so it's a social movement, I think, that is, has a broad-based set of concerns, but also whose objectives are, are multiple, but bound up in a kind of common orientation that is a transformation of the establishment, world politics, and economics. So it's, you know, I suppose it could be attempted to be delegitimized by saying, well, what's it called? How can you measure, you know, and quantify when it happens? But it's beyond that. It, you know, it just is, uh, is really uh, something different entirely. And there's a great history throughout France. I think of the uh, situationalist international around the turn of the last century. It's just to, to, to humanize and to take on the dehumanized, uh, as you say, neoliberal, which is nothing like liberal as we in America understand it. It's, it's right. something else entirely. And of course, French President Francois Hollande is a socialist, which has its particular understanding here in the United States. Is he seen as more of the same old establishment politics and is not following through on popular will? Is that is that part of it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that the context in which Nuit Debout has emerged is extremely important. When we hear the term socialist in the North American context, of course, it tends to have a connotation of extreme left. But the Socialist Party in France, like arguably the supposed left in institutionalized politics in Europe and in North America is uh, very, it's been moved radically to the right over the last decades. And so his position is ultimately something like a center-left or a centrist position, and he's identified as part of the establishment, not unlike the Obama administration. And the relationship contextually between the supposed hopes that some people had concerning the Obama administration and then the emergence of the Occupy movement. I know a number oh, of people in the movement were disheartened by the lack of true or radical leftist politics on the part of the Obama administration. And there's a clear par parallel with the Hollande administration in France, particularly given the most recent security measures against the um, terrorist attacks in November, right. because there has been an extension of the state of emergency, much like under the Obama administration. And the state of emergency, of course, allows for a whole series of things to happen that are breaches in uh, constitutional law. And let me just... Uh, Go ahead. Return to one of the first things that you said that I think is so important that I wanted to touch on is that there tends to be a very instrumentalist logic concerning movements such as this, hmm. so that the media narrative is, well, what is their goal and what are the means by which they're going to arrive at that goal? And it's immediately instrumentalized, as if you could reduce a social movement of this sort to a kind of means and rationality. That's the rationality of capitalism. It's the rationality uh, of productive output. And if the overall goal is a transformation of society in toto, 
meaning it's economic, it's political, and it's social, and it's media structures, then it cannot be reduced to simply one goal within this instrumentalized logic, which is ultimately a logic of, of demands, as if one should simply demand from the government that certain things be given to the, to the people. Uh-huh. And the Nuit Debout movement has been at the forefront, particularly the work of Frédéric Lourdon, in insisting on there not being a demand in this limited sense of the term, but instead an, af- an affirmation of alternative modes of political and social organization. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, I have to say, and fun must be part of the uh, you know attraction to it. Uh, and 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 uh, th- this is an interesting take. You write in the article in uh, Counterpunch, quote: "Sleepless global capitalism, sleepless global capitalism. Get that in your mind. Uh, works hand in hand with a soporific media machine, insofar as the latter generates the somnambulists necessary." for endless profit extraction sounds, glitches, or resistance, and that there is a deep complicity between for-profit media and profit-driven economy and the political system. That says a lot. I wonder if you could talk more about uh, what you mean there. Well, I think that the way in which the for-profit media operates is that it formats the worldview of the citizenry. And in the current case, many people in the Anglophone world are completely unconscious of the fact that there is this massive social movement that's sweeping across Europe and spreading elsewhere. Uh, what the mass media does then is it suggests that these types of movements simply don't exist, or if it does shed light on them, uh, aims at delegitimating them in various ways. Meaning that one of the goals, if it's explicit or implicit, is to keep people asleep at the wheel. Meaning it tries to generate the sleepwalkers, who are those who don't really raise questions about the corporate system and how it operates, those who are simply cogs in this system and who will go to work day day in and day out, uh, simply kind of amused and distracted and rocked to sleep by the entertainment industry and the, the, the media itself. And I should highlight in relationship to this that the Nuit Debout movement is particularly interesting in the extent to which it resists both the sleeplessness of capitalism, which is always awake to yes. extract profit somewhere in the world, yes. and the global dimensions. Nuit Debout is inviting us to stay awake through the night of capitalism and to awaken ourselves globally to a system that does not work so that we awaken globally against sleepless global capitalism. And this is one of the reasons that alternative media is so crucially important and the work that you do and many others do, because it can be a vector and a source for this reawakening. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I got to you know mention the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. It hasn't been that the mass media, the for-profit media has covered it so much. Uh-uh, not at all. Yeah. They've tried to pretend it isn't there. and it's, it, But it's been amazingly effective. The not mass media, the regular, you know, human type media, uh, social media and things like that have spread it uh, pretty quickly. How How is the word getting out if it's not on the mainstream media? Well, alternative media platforms are crucially important for 
what Cornelius Castoriadis has called paideia, paideia being this Greek sense of education in which you're educated as a citizen, yeah, meaning you're yes. given the tools for autonomous reflection and critique that allow you individually or collectively yes. to analyze a situation. And you cannot have a functioning democracy unless you have paideia, unless you have this collective mode of education. And alternative media in the Anglophone world is really at the heart of reigniting for years now this sense of a collective education. And so the role that this media plays, I don't think can be underestimated. Uh, It is really a tool for education and empowerment that allows democracy to become meaningful as opposed to simply being a pseudo-democracy in which one is told from above (laughs) stories about how the powers that be are somehow following one's interests. And I am reminded, of course, of uh, Plato's uh, story of the cave, where, you know, you have to believe the shadows that are projected on you. And our so-called democracy now absolutely depends on people not feeling like citizens, but being kind of asleep, staying asleep, just accepting their own powerlessness. And it sounds like what's going on here by people connecting with one another night after night and being together in big uh, numbers does connect people and remind people we are anything but powerless. What about the uh, popular opinion in France and other Western European countries? Are there indications that Nuit Debout is having uh, popular support or, or, or is the general population against it, do you think? There is a very broad popular support in the sheer numbers of uh, individuals who have been participating, as well as different cities with uh, Nuit Debout sites, is extraordinary. Uh, in France, you do also see in the media, of course, a broad spectrum. Uh, it is in France, you cannot ignore the phenomenon. But the mass media, particularly on the right end of the spectrum, has been doing everything in its power to delegitimate the movement and to portray it as something that does not necessarily have popular support. A number of prominent uh, politicians, uh, pundits, uh, members of the media, etc., have come out against the movement. Um, But its popular support is overwhelming, and this speaks to the ability of the general population to see through the corporate media machine and the stories that are told. Like the Occupy movement and a number of the other movements, Nuit Debout has its own media coverage. It has Radio Debout, TV Debout, it Mm. has live webcams, uh, streaming, etc. So that the stories can be told from the inside, imminently, instead of framed and reframed from the outside, and the sites are open, so anyone can go and participate. Oh, how incredibly human. What a concept. Uh, we're talking to Gabriel Rockhill, who's written about the media blackout on Nuit Debout in France. He is associate professor in Villanova University's uh, philosophy department. Fascinating stuff, and I, I have to say. And the academic David Graeber, a leading figure in the Occupy Wall Street protests of 2011, said the protests in France and Europe have spread much faster than those in 2011. Why would that be, do you think? Is it just that the French are more 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 uh, willing to believe that people actually do have power? What, what do you think it is? 
It's hard to say exactly. I think some of it is conjunctural. I think a lot of the forces that have partially but not fully gone underground from Occupy and Ignatos and other movements around the world have, to a certain extent, uh, found uh, a set of locales by which they could emerge in a new powerful form. Uh, Marx, of course, highlighted this in the 19th century, the extent to which... uh, revolutionary moments when they purportedly fail actually give sustenance to future revolutionary moments. His famous claim was, of course, the revolution is dead, long live the revolution. Absolutely. That revolutions that go underground will spawn in the future more uh, kind of extraordinary uh, moments of conflagration and confrontation. and it brings up curiosity. People are curious. People are interested in it because there is something so basically human, so basically full of hope uh, that, uh, let's face it, Obama kind of used the word hope. Uh, but this is some real hope. I'm reminded, as, as I was reading about this and, and as you describe it, uh, uh, Gabriel, Gandhi is credited with saying uh, of social movements, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. <laughs> Are, are we then still at the first phase of, of Gandhi's analysis on this, do you think? In the Anglophone world, definitely. In the Francophone world, we're arguably at the second phase uh-huh. and probably transitioning into the third, yeah. from laughter to fight. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that is particularly important now, given the historical precedents in relationship to this movement, is that it's arguable that the Occupy movement, in spite of many both social and rhetorical and discursive gains, did not gain as much traction economically and politically for changing institutions. And there was a bit of what we might call a horizontal diffusion of the movement. And in other instances, such as Indignados, one could speak of something like a vertical integration into representative politics and into the system, which brings a whole series of problems. The Nuit Debout movement, I think, is currently at a moment at which it's trying to articulate a kind of oblique institutional transformation, which is neither horizontally diffuse nor vertically trying to integrate into representational politics, but to articulate other strategies for moving these types of movements to the next level. And I don't think that all of this work has been done as of yet, but that it's an important stage in a process that I guess would lead to what Gandhi refers to as this third step of a fight in which uh, new strategies appear for a deeper institutional and constitutional transformation of the status quo. Fantastic. And uh, it's just so interesting. And I'm sure it confuses the heck out of the uh, establishment, you know, because they can't really define it. But it's just really about being human and getting together. Nuit debout. Is Are there American connections yet, do you think? Do you see anything like that? A little bit. Uh, and I've been in contact with, um, with people here in the United States. It has developed a Uh, slightly more in French-speaking Canada, Uh probably due to the cultural connections. But my hope is it's right around the corner on the 15th uh, of this month that there'll be further at least acts of solidarity, if not a spread of the movement itself.
Uh, could be. Well, if people want to read about this, and I hope they do, what websites or what kind of uh, uh, connections can you point people to? As far as, there's a lot that's available in French. As far as what's available in right. English, yeah. as you've mentioned, Counterpunch, um, I have two articles on there, and there's at least one other. Roar Magazine has provided mm. uh, solid coverage. The Wikipedia website is, in English, very good. The Guardian has a few articles. Those are at least the sources that come to mind for more reliable coverage. Mm -hmm. There are a few articles already out in the Anglophone press that have to do with denigrating the socialist government and blaming it on mm. socialism somehow, <laughs> but they're completely disconnected from what socialism actually means in France, and they play off of all of the, the negative connotations in the Anglophone world. So I would avoid, there's in particular one article that was published by the uh, Associated Press that was picked up by... Uh, uh, numerous yeah. different mass media outlets uh, that should simply not be read because it's an uninformed article. Yeah, why am I not surprised? Fascinating stuff. And uh, Nuit debout can be translated in, in many different ways. Night on your feet, night uprising. Thank you for so much for being with us, uh, Gabriel Rockhill. Fascinating stuff. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about it. And another way it might be translated is uh, spending the night together. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Spending the night together. Nuit debout. Standing together every night. Well, we're going to uh, recognize something that happened a little bit in history. April 24, 2016 was the 20th anniversary of a bill which became law, signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Uh, it has severely eroded our seriously treasured constitutional right of habeas corpus. Unless you're a lawyer and have been wrongfully imprisoned, you may have heard of habeas corpus, but not really know what it is. But as our guest today, Liliana Segura, is about to explain, it is a vital component of our rights as citizens under the Constitution. And under new Democratic President Bill Clinton, there was a successful, unquestionably politically driven drive to erode and practically destroy this historic and precious right. 
As with many other laws, it seems that President Clinton carried out what the Republicans tried but failed to accomplish. He actually did it in a move to look tougher on crime than the Republicans, who had owned that phrase until Clinton's presidency. As law critic Emily Bazelon opined, the law is systematically failing to provide the necessary safeguards against miscarriages of justice. But, well, at least it helped get Clinton reelected in 1996. Never mind, there's a lot of miscarriages of justice that have affected a lot of real people uh, since it was signed into law April 24th, 1996. The law in question is called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, or AEDPA. Lorenzo Johnson, who was recognized Uh, to be innocent of the charges for which he was convicted and released from prison after 16 years. And then, because of this erosion of habeas corpus, is now back behind bars. He may have defined this law perfectly, as he called it Clinton's other terrible crime bill, the other more famous being the Omnibus Crime Bill of 1994. That's the three strikes and you're out, build more prisons, expand the death penalty, and mandatory minimum sentencing, which had caused this horrible phenomenon of mass incarceration. Actually, this mass incarceration was not at all unintended, as his wife is uh, currently claiming. Here to explain Clinton's other terrible crime bill is Liliana Segura. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Well, Liliana Segura is an award-winning journalist and editor with a long-time focus on the criminal justice system. She is currently senior writer, editor at The Intercept, fascinating source, uh, the news website uh, founded, launched in 2014, based on the documents leaked by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. She covers a range of issues related to prisons and prisoners, writing investigative features, as well as commentary on wrongful convictions, the harsh sentencing of juvenile defendants, and the death penalty. Previously, she covered these and other issues as an editor at the good old Nation magazine. Segura and her work have been featured at the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and several other news outlets. And this is impressive stuff. In 2015, she was awarded the Silver Gavel Award by the State Bar of Texas. Previously, she won a Media for a Just Society Award, She's on the board of the Campaign to End the Death Penalty, as well as Race Forward, a racial justice think tank. Okay, long introduction, but it's worth it. What the heck is habeas corpus, and why? what is so important about it? Well, um, sort of to put it succinctly, um, habeas corpus essentially is the long-held uh, right of uh, imprisoned people to challenge their uh, detention. Uh, and this is the right that goes back, I mean, centuries, essentially, uh, and is known uh, within the legal community as, as the Great Writ, you know, capital G, capital W. Uh, so it really is a treasured and long-standing sort of concept, the idea that, you know, anybody whose freedom has been taken away has the chance, has, has some opportunity, some meaningful chance to go before a judge or a court and, and, and challenge the, the underlying conviction or at least, you know, challenge his incarceration, his or her. So, and just, and you had a, your introduction was, was perfect. It perfectly captures the context of what we're talking about. Uh, it's important also to note that, you know, efforts to kind of 
streamline or reform or sort of mess with habeas corpus in the name of reform have existed uh, for decades, uh, long before the Clinton administration. But as you as you uh, say, uh, it was under Clinton that this kind of long um, long hill desire to kind of uh, reform quote unquote habeas uh, finally came to fruition, if not the way that people had planned. Well, I think it's the way a lot of uh, Republicans plan. They just, you know, rights, eh, they're so inconvenient. Uh, Tell us about the political context. What were the political motivations for President Clinton when the new, this other bad crime law came into effect? Tell us about that, please. Sure. So there's a, there are a few things going on, and this is part of what prompted me to kind of look into this history. You know, uh, many of us who know about this law, and, and to be clear, this law is incredibly sweeping in, 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 in what it does. I mean, uh, apart from what it did to habeas corpus, it had uh, profound implications when it came to immigration uh, and deportation policies. It had uh, it laid the groundwork uh, very much for the Patriot Act. Uh, so, so there's a lot of that, you know, sort of in this in this law. But but uh, people uh, often sort of begin the history of this law um, at the point where the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Right. This law was passed uh, in the wake of that attack. It's sort of classic, you know, we saw the Patriot Act very swiftly after 9-11, sort of that sort of fear, um, fear-motivated, fear-driven uh, political moment where you kind of push through all these, all these sort of long-held um, uh, ideas uh, in the name of fighting terrorism. So so that's certainly part of the, the political uh, uh, landscape at the time. But but what I did in my story was sort of try to understand what was going on in the run-up to that um, and how this law fit into the political climate that gave us the crime bill in 94. And that's where I found that uh, you, can, you can really learn a lot seeing how in 1994, uh, when the Republicans took over Congress, you know, what we know is the sort of Newt Gingrich right. led Republican revolution, which was devastating to the Clinton administration. This is halfway through his term. He's failing to pass health health care reform. He's not really having political wins. Um, but the crime bill was this critical uh, political victory, right, that kind of allowed him to, to really... Uh, take on this tough-on-crime image, and it was sort of a political win. And that, so the crime bill passes in the fall of 94, uh, uh, two months before the, the Republicans take over Congress. And uh, what I did was go and look at some of these these uh, memos, White House memos from the time, uh, media from the time, um, to kind of try to get a sense of what was going on. And in these memos, you really see Clinton's uh, sort of main uh, aides and advisors strategizing. What are we going to do now? Now that the Republicans have taken over the the, the House, what they they're going to go after the crime bill? And one of the priority number one uh, for many of them was protecting this crime bill, not allowing the Republicans to kind of try to to uh, to disembowel <laughs> it, it, that legislation that had just passed. Which, in fairness, you know, the Republicans were absolutely trying to do. They had come up with a crime bill of their own. They were going to get rid of all the prevention measures. They wanted to outflank Clinton and take back this tough on crime label. So, so sort of the road that leads to AADPA or EDPA um, it begins in large part with this kind of uh, attempt to, 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 to uh, this fight basically over that tough on crime sort of um, label and, and badge, uh, which Clinton had so effectively sort of undermined <laughs> the Republicans with. Um, so, uh, and it's only, um, I mean, there's there's a lot sort of that happens in the run-up to, to the Oklahoma City bombing, but, uh, but, but what's important to know is that habeas reform, uh, quote-unquote, was part of um, both the Democrats and the Republicans sort of 
strategy in maintaining that tough on crime label uh, in, uh, after the 94 midterms. And then um, Oklahoma City happens, and sure. one of the first things that Bill Clinton does is go on 60 Minutes uh, days later and say, I expanded the death penalty, you know, through my crime bill for crimes like this, and this is why Congress needs to pass habeas reform. And right there, he put it out there that this needed to be a priority, and uh, we can sort of talk about how that ended up in the, the law that eventually passed, but essentially, once it was out there, there was no going back. And I got to tell you, uh, I wouldn't want to be in a society where there was no habeas corpus. It's really, really terrorizing the incredible power of the state over us. Uh, I think habeas corpus translates roughly from the Latin into having body, something like that. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely essential. And you write in your article, uh, Liliana, uh, for people in prison, its legacy of this law has been sweeping and harsh. For all the rhetoric that accompanied the signing of this law, EDPA, it has been most severely felt by state prisoners with no connection to terrorism. Please tell us about that. Well, that's right. And, and that's what was so illogical about the, the way that this all sort of went down. You know, efforts to reform uh, habeas uh, were underway long before um, uh, it, it, uh, sure. Sort of these fears of terror came to define define the issue, and so and and what was at the heart of that was that you know for various reasons, um, which we still see today, uh, prisoners on death row especially were um, spending years and years uh, awaiting uh, execution essentially, and you know try filing their appeals uh, to which they have a constitutional right. Um, to to challenge their their convictions and their incarceration, and so you know it's very easy to demonize uh, prisoners who have been sent to oh, death yeah. row uh, sure. for for abusing the system or filing appeal after appeal as as was commonly heard and and still is commonly heard. Yeah. The reality is actually more complicated, which is that it takes you know it's a problem of um, a, a representation. You know, not enough lawyers to handle these cases. It's a problem of courts that don't rule in any kind of a timely way. Uh, not because they're just being bombarded by um, by appeals, meritless appeals, but for any number of other reasons. But anyway, this idea of the sort of death row prisoner abusing the system and clogging our courts with meritless uh, habeas claims really captured the public imagination. And, and politicians ran with that, and prosecutors uh, still still say that. Um, so, so habeas reform was was supposed to solve this problem. We're going to limit their appeals. You know, we're going to give them one year. Um, we're we're going to limit the number of appeals. We're going to give them a one year window in which to file these federal appeals. Um, and crucially, you know, in fairness to the Democrats and in fairness specifically to Joe Biden, for whom this was sort of a pet project, he it was very important for him to um, include as uh, part of this reform. Um, the guarantee of of sort of competent counsel, the you know, uh, guarantee uh-huh. that prisoners would have lawyers to to help them um, file this this critical sort of habeas um, uh, writ. Um, and unfortunately, as the story plays out, uh, that competent counsel uh, uh-huh. it doesn't have the, the Republicans' version passes instead. And so, so what you find now are state prisoners who 
those who are not on death row um, often left to file appeals pro se, which means, you know, essentially on their own behalf, um, and trying to meet all the provisions of this incredibly complicated law, which lawyers, you know, go to law school and still have problems understanding all its limitations um, and, and parts, and, and let alone somebody who, who you know, is, has limited resources of a prisoner um, in any given state. Mm. So it's been, you know, the sort of... I should add, too, uh, which is that the people I hear the most, or I have over the years heard the most about this law from, uh, they tend to be lawyers, and they tend to be exonerees, formerly incarcerated uh-huh. people, um, or, or people in prison, or people, family members of prisoners sure. who are left to kind of grapple oh, yeah. with this. And I think that's very telling. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the family members who are obviously completely innocent, and oftentimes the prisoners are innocent, but even if they're guilty, the family members suffer from this. Uh, the law has had a major impact on death penalty cases. I suspect you and I agree there really should be no death penalty, but that's another subject. Have there been innocent people who were put to death because of the absence of habeas corpus? Well, as uh, as the former White House lawyer told me in my my story, uh, you know, one of the people who tried within the administration to fight against this, Abner uh, Mikva, he he's he's quite certain, you know, in his in his words, uh, you know, I, I I can't I don't have the language in front of me, but he essentially said, yeah, I, I I'm fairly certain that innocent people may well have been um, executed as a result of the absence of habeas corpus, and he wasn't specific, but there are specific examples. Um, the most famous one that that comes up uh, again and again, which you know, uh, uh, is is the case of Troy Davis, which I didn't mention in my story, but you uh. know, Troy Davis, who uh, was convicted solely on eyewitness um, testimony. Uh, you know, a majority of those eyewitnesses later recanted their testimony. They said that they had been coerced by police, any number of things. Uh, and the state of Georgia, nonetheless, carried out this execution. Uh, Troy Davis is a man who, um, part of the reason he was unable to get that evidence uh, sort of seen and heard, uh, was were the limitations uh, of this law. Uh, so, so you know, that's a very disturbing, that was an incredibly disturbing case for many, many people, but there are uh, many other examples of sort of, you know, questionable executions that went through who, who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, which involved prisoners who at the center would have been um, sort of, as I put it in the piece, you know, the, the courthouse door would have been slammed on them uh, in their attempts to kind of bring bring forward. And I should also say, um, you know, in the years after, I don't remember the exact year, but there have been attempts to sort of amend this law to allow for um, new evidence to kind of make it into the courtroom, but it, that's a complicated reality. You know, there are any number of other uh, ways in which um, judges and courts privilege finality over fairness. Um, uh, so this just happens to be a really egregious example, but there are many ways in which those claims are denied. If you just tuned in, we're talking about uh, habeas corpus and Clinton's other terrible crime bill. Bert Cohen here, our guest, talking about this, describing this as Liliana Segura who knows a lot of stuff about the criminal justice system. And and you have called EDPA one of the worst laws of Bill Clinton's presidency. Why is that? Uh, well, in part, it's, it's sort of sweeping scope. I mean, you could have this conversation, a different version of this conversation with, with somebody who knows a lot about immigration and what it did to sort of 
uh, criminalize immigrants and, and really ruthless deportation policies, which we're still dealing with today. Yes. Uh, so, so it's a part of the problem with this law that it's actually impossible to write a sort of <laughs> succinct history of all the ways in which it was bad because it affected so many uh, and, and, and set the stage for so many other sort of bad, uh, huh. bad laws, like, as I mentioned, the, the Patriot Act. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I think, you know, what's important, too, I described the way in which... Um, Habeas petitions were now limited um, in number, and in uh, this, this, this incredibly severe time limit was imposed. Uh, but but one thing that I really learned actually while researching this piece is is the the sort of more invisible, um, in many ways, uh, but profound ways in which um, EDPA altered the balance of power between the state courts and the federal uh, judiciary, oh. so that federal judges are now actually are more limited in their ability to overturn a state conviction. Right. Uh, the, 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 the law, when it passed, and actually there was a whole discussion around this, there were all these red flags. Clinton's own White House lawyers and DOJ lawyers were, were raising concern that this law would require federal courts to show much more deference to state courts, to this conclusions reached in state courts, um, and it would tie judges' hands. And Clinton, actually, it's kind of extraordinary in his signing statement when he signed this law, addressed this issue completely, and he said, no, I don't think it's going to be read this way. I don't think that this is going to, you know, sort of... uh, Mm. Uh, take away the powers of the federal judiciary, and he was completely wrong. All those warnings in, indeed have come to pass, and so this is where you have cases like this man Lorenzo Johnson in Pennsylvania, who the, the, a, a court, uh, story. a federal court, uh, overturned this state conviction, and then uh, and he was freed for after 16 years uh, for four months, and then the the prosecutors at the in that case uh, appealed. And it got to the Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court ordered him basically sent back to prison. Said this this federal court got it wrong. They they failed to show due deference to the state court uh, when when they concluded that there was insufficient evidence that this man committed this crime. And Lorenzo Johnson is back in prison um, with no end in sight. Uh, and, and and at the center of this decision was this idea that um, federal courts have to uh, have to show greater deference to state courts, um, even if the conclusions are, are uh, sort of clearly problematic. Uh, so so it's, it's very disturbing in that way. Oh, it's disturbing in so many ways. And, and yeah. there's a, a quite a, a quote in your article, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Alex Kaczynski wrote in the Georgetown Law Journal uh, recently, quote, we now regularly, we being the, the judges, we now regularly have to stand by in impotent silence, even though it may appear to us that an innocent person has been convicted. It's just appalling to me. In your analysis of this law, is it bad law born of the best of intentions, as Hillary Clinton has, has said, or is it law misconceived at its inception and born of misguided political ambition, as Judge Stephen Reinhardt recently wrote. What are your thoughts on that? Well, everything that I found when researching this this piece uh, leads me to conclude that it's the latter. Um, it, it was pretty amazing to see Judge Reinhardt uh, back in 89, video from C-SPAN testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the dangers of messing with habeas corpus uh, long before this law passed. So, so, so... 
part of what motivated to even research this history is this narrative that we've heard coming off of the this discussions about the crime bill and all these debates. It's like, well, we, we you know, if we knew if we knew then what we know now, sort of best intentions narratives. In fact, for years people had been raising a concern and alarm about uh the, the impact this kind of so-called reform could have. Uh and and especially revealing were these memos in which um in which uh, this one White House lawyer lays out the various versions of habeas reform, quote-unquote, that are kind of circling Congress and, and makes it very, very clear just how dangerous some of these, these changes are. And so, and, you know, you kind of go from that to the ultimate, the, the signing statement that, that Bill Clinton um, uh, sort of that precedes his uh, or or that comes after he signs this this law, and it's it's all there. It's all there. He knew how dangerous it was. He somehow convinced himself that that uh, it wouldn't be interpreted in this in this incredibly draconian way. Um, but all the warnings were there. It, people in, were in the press. You know, it, it, the, the case had been made very clearly, and so you can't actually look at that record and conclude that this was a law born of the best intentions. In fact, essentially. To the extent that Bill Clinton and his administration had concerns, he sort of sold them out. Um, he kind of mm. did the politically expedient thing in the end, uh, and that's why I say towards the end that the, the final question for him was how to spin it. You know, because you know some of those memos uh, it make clear that he he would have preferred you know to pass a law that that uh, allowed for for example, this this competent counsel uh, provision that he would have preferred, you know, a different version of this. But that's sort of a dis- distinction without a difference. When you're the president mm. of the United States, you're going to go ahead and sign the law anyway. <laughs> well, sure. And, and, I mean, just politically speaking, there's a large constituency that feels comfortable with the phrase, tough on crime. There's a right. very small constituency of people who are jailed improperly, who's, you know, who are family members, that's not a lot of people. So just, you know, from sheer political arithmetic, you know, what the heck? Okay, so a few thousand people are jailed inappropriately and may be executed even though they're innocent. Eh, there's not that many of them. So looking tough on crime, you know, it pays off. I thought it was interesting that, as you mentioned, uh, quote another quote from Judge Stephen uh, Reinhardt, he said, Finality and speed are the presumed objectives. As you say, finality over fairness. Uh, He said, they seem to outweigh the concerns for fairness, justice, due process, and compliance with the Constitution. Again, it's a small constituency. What the heck? Another uh, person you quote from, somebody I have tremendous respect for, who has, of course, long since passed away, New York Democrat Daniel Patrick Moynihan, warned that the provisions curtailing habeas corpus would, quote, introduce a virus that will surely spread throughout our system of laws. Has it? Is that happening, do you think? I think so. I think that all you have to do is, is read the words of Judge Kaczynski, you know, and his and, and, and when he says this is a law that's been responsible for, for much human suffering. I mean, that's really what the virus is, right? And I would also say, you know, although it's true that sort of there's an... A, 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 the question is sort of wrongful convictions. What qualifies as a wrong, wrongfully incarcerated person? You know, it's not just about sort of actual innocence, as they say uh, in the law. It's, it's also just, true. Uh, you, it can be a guilty person who was nonetheless, um, you know, a, a victim of an unfair trial who was convicted in ways that didn't abide by the Constitution. You know, those are also sort of the kinds of convictions that um, that that we're supposed to have safeguards against, you know, it, it, the guilty people are still 
meant to be afforded their constitutional rights. And, Absolutely. And made it that much, you know, harder to overturn those convictions as well. And that's that's no less egregious, uh, in a sense, uh, when you consider, you know, how, how important those, those rights are for, for, for everyone, for all of us. There is a lot of concern these days. Uh, the, the the subject of mass incarceration is has gotten a lot more public attention recently, and there's a lot of uh, activity against uh, the death penalty. I don't know about this. Are there people speaking out about this? Uh, you know, serious erosion of of the uh, treasured right of habeas corpus. What, if anything, can people do about this? Is there anything people can do? Well, I actually think that it is a law that, I mean, there's there's a lot of talk about repealing it within certain sort of legal circles. Oh, I think good. that uh, the fact that federal judges, sitting federal judges, are speaking out about this is really significant. That's not something that federal judges ordinarily do. Um, my hope would be that, you know, and I tried to keep Hillary out of this story because it's not really, a, I, it's, it's tough to write this kind of story in our sort of, current political moment because people sort of see it as, as a, you know, take their partisan stance and, and don't want to hear what's actually mm. uh, being discussed. But I do think that Hillary, if she really wants to follow through on this idea of, of, of uh, prison reform, if she really claims to be the candidate that's going to sort of, quote-unquote end the era of mass incarceration, she could actually do something. She could actually uh, address this law. She could actually call on Congress to, to, to take a, a look at this law and and either, you know, find ways to to amend it or repeal it or, or something. I mean, she really believed in, in the rhetoric that she's been spouting for the past year. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it could be. <laughs> right. right. One never knows with, with Hillary Clinton. And, of course, she wants to bring her husband back into power. Uh, fascinating subject, something that uh, you know hasn't gotten enough attention but affects an awful lot of people's lives. Is there any particular website you can point people to? They can find out more about this and what they might be able to do. Well, you know, you can start by going to the Intercept, which is self-promotion, but it's true. I mean, this is a story that I think it really requires reading it through and through to kind of understand all the nuances. So I would definitely lead people to the Intercept. Um, Emily Bazelon's piece at the New York Times uh, Magazine, which I linked to, is also really useful. And then Lorenzo Johnson uh, oh, yeah. writes incredibly powerfully at the Huffington Post, and I linked to him as well. Well, thank you so much for shedding light on this uh, kind of dark area of rough justice. Thank you so much. Liliana Segura, thank you. Thanks. Take care.